You're listening to City Church. You can go to 1 Peter chapter 1 if uh, you have a Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, that's where we'll start today. I found joy. It's been a good time these last couple of weeks. Um, it's been really good for my spirit, hopefully for yours as well, just to study this topic of joy. Check one, two, check, check. We're a little crazy on us. Isn't that crazy? We, you know, we check this mic, and yet it has a mind of its own after we check it. Check one, two, check, 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 one, two, 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 two. Okay, if you remember the first week of I Found Joy, it was two weeks ago now, um, you remember that we talked about this topic of treasuring and trusting Jesus. Let me see your hand if you remember that slightly a little bit, mostly. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so if you missed that, that's a crucial piece to understanding joy that we start, the foundation, beginning of joy, is treasuring and trusting Christ. What I mean by that is treasuring him, saying, God, you're the most valuable person, you're the most valuable relationship, you're the most important possession in my life is to be with you, to possess a relationship with you. And so that's treasuring Jesus, saying, Jesus, you are my greatest treasure. And then trusting Christ is taking that step to say, I believe that you're faithful, that you'll do what you said, right? And so treasuring and trusting, treasuring and trusting, that's the foundation. Then we looked last week at this idea of hope, that you can't grow your joy, right? You can't make yourself happier. It doesn't work. You can't will yourself happy. You know, you can't just tell yourself, hey, just put on a smile. It doesn't actually work like that. And so the way that you grow your joy is you grow your hope, right? You expand your hope. And just as the tree of hope grows in our lives, now the fruit of joy comes off of it. You guys remember this? Awesome. Okay. Um, I want to look at those two realities in a passage in 1 Peter and, uh, and kind of show you where we're going to go today. We'll start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse if you're new to the Bible, this is a letter written by one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, okay? And so um, it's written by a man named Peter, and he was one of the most well-known apostles, followers of Christ, and he wrote this letter to churches all around the area where he was, okay? And so he wrote it to encourage them and to teach them what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so it's applicable to us today, even 2,000 years later, as we seek to follow the truths of Jesus. And so, um, so we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You'll notice a couple things right there. He calls hope what? They might catch it? Living. It wasn't a trick question. He calls hope living. Okay, so hope is living. So in other words, he's affirming the fact that we looked at last week, that hope is, a, is like an organism. It's growing, right? It's like a tree. It's alive. And so it must be fed, nourished on God's truth, and it grows, right? Stronger. So we've been born again, and we talked about that last week. This is that reality of regeneration, that God's spirit is married to your spirit, and you're made new. He turns the light on, and you can now see the truth that you're created for God and by God, and you trust in him for salvation. That's being born again, right? And so it says, to an inheritance, verse for that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by the power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that's really, really good news. That's what your hope is in. Your hope is in the inheritance that God has promised you, an inheritance of eternal life, an inheritance of forgiveness of sins, an inheritance of relationship with him, right? And so we see in that passage there, treasure, or we see in that passage the hope, right? Now skip down to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Hopefully this looks familiar. This was the first uh, week we looked at this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So there we see the treasuring and trusting. Though you don't see him now, you love him. That's treasuring. And though you don't see him, you believe in him. And that's trusting, right? Treasuring 
and trusting. Now, I don't know if you noticed, I skipped a couple verses in between that. Did anybody notice that? I went from verse 3, 4, 5, 8. What happened to 6 and 7? Well, that's what we want to look at today. Today we want to look at 6 and 7. And what I've become convinced of is if we don't understand 6 and 7, we won't fully comprehend 3 through 5 or verse 8. Okay? So it's crucial. We want to add a third reality to the understanding of hope today. A third aspect of what it means to be a person of joy. All right? And so check this out with me. Verse 6 and 7, it says this. In this you rejoice. Now, if you know what we just read, you know that we're rejoicing because of the inheritance that God's given us, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, all in Christ. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Oh, no, let's skip this one. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Today, we want to look at this idea, if you want to write something on the top of the notes, if you like to take notes, this idea of greater joy, greater joy. We want to get even greater in the understanding and experience of our joy, greater joy. Let's pray. We submit ourselves right now, Jesus, to the truths of your word. Right now, Holy Spirit, I know that people are in different positions and circumstances in this room. Some of us are skeptics and coming in unsure of any of this stuff. Some of us are casual in our uh, commitment to following the truths of God. Some of us see it as sort of just a distant manuscript. And then others of us have encountered the person of Christ. Wherever we are in our story today, I pray that the truth of God's word, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, would penetrate our hearts and our minds to such a degree that we'd be convinced of its truth. We welcome you right now to teach us, Holy Spirit. We didn't come here to listen to some guy talk. We came here because we want to hear you. Would you speak to us now for the next few minutes as we study this? I don't know if you've ever been to Borough Manhattan Community College. I don't know how big the school is, but it's a school uh, right in, uh, in downtown New York City. And uh, Borough Manhattan Community College, I've only been there once. I've been there when I was 19 years old. It was 2001, and, uh, and I got a phone call from a, my father-in-law, actually. I wasn't married to his daughter yet, but uh, from uh, the man who would later become my father-in-law, that if I was willing, I could go in as a chaplain at 19 or 20, go in as a chaplain to Borough Manhattan Community College and counsel and pray with students who had just experienced the atrocities of 9-11. And I remember I walked into that school, I had a jacket, a chaplain jacket, you know, and I walked in that school as a young kid, basically the same age as the other kids in the college, and they're walking around the classroom, this is probably, I don't know, very, very shortly after, maybe a week and a half after 9-11, and I'm walking around, and I'm talking with the kids uh, about their experience, and, and I'm, wa I'm watching as person after person, they just, they can't even function. I mean, they're walking around kind of like zombies holding these books and not even really able to do life because of the tragedy that they just experienced. I mean, I sat with one kid and he just wept as he said, you know, I watched people look out the windows of, of the trade center and not be sure what to do until they finally just decided to jump and I watched them hit the cement and I watched them die. What do I do with that? I don't have an answer. So we prayed and we wept together and we talked about it. A while back now, I was driving home from a pastor's lunch and, uh, you know, a bunch of different pastors and leaders had gotten together and I was driving with somebody else and he decided to take an alternate route and he kind of got lost in the middle of Connecticut. I had no idea where we were. Our GPS, for whatever reason, wasn't working. And we found ourselves about six or seven days after um, the Newtown shooting 
driving through downtown Newtown by accident. And as we're driving through downtown Newtown, we realized that there's, there's we didn't know even where we were. And then we pulled out and we said, hey, wait a second, hold on, we're, we're in Newtown right now. And we watched as just funeral procession after funeral procession went by and people with flowers and, and all of a sudden in the midst of just a, so for us kind of a normal moment in the midst of that we entered into all the suffering and all the pain of those 20 something kids parents that lost their lives for no good reason and I remember just kind of looking at the people as they shuffled back and forth all wearing black all carrying flowers and just my heart beginning to break and just say man not sure if you followed the story of Pastor Saeed at all Pastor Saeed is a Iranian-American who's been in Iran for uh, just over two years now, um, serving a sentence for loving Jesus. Uh, he went there in 2012 to uh, help work on an orphanage that he works with and to see family, and he was arrested for being a Christian and from converting out of Islam, and he was put in prison, and he's been there now for two years suffering under intense conditions. Just the other day I was online, I just watched this video of his kids begging the American government to do something. He's a seven-year-old and a six-year-old, a little boy and a little girl, and Jacob, and I think her name's Rebecca, were just in the video just crying out, saying, is there anything you can do? I want my daddy to be home for Christmas. Maybe you've never suffered in an Iranian prison. Maybe you've never seen the loss of your child at a young age. Maybe you've never experienced the reality of 2,000-plus people dying in a flaming building. Maybe you haven't seen those things, but I can guarantee you if you're breathing, You've experienced suffering. You've experienced suffering. Every single one of us has experienced trials and suffering. Can I just, just so we all feel a little bit more together in this, can I see your hand if you've experienced some suffering in your life? Half of us, that's great. Liars! No, we all have experienced suffering, right? That moment that you got that diagnosis or your family member got that diagnosis and it was not good news. That moment where you realized that the dream you had been working for for years and years and years was just definitely not going to happen. Where do you turn? Here's a question for you. Where do you turn? What's your response when you experience this reality of suffering? When you experience this trial, where do you turn? Many people, in fact, I would say maybe the majority of people turn to ridiculously foolish things like, why don't I drink some more? Why don't I take some more pills? Hoping that that's going to help numb the pain. And it does. It does numb the pain for a little while. And then it compounds the pain immeasurably more because the pain never gets dealt with. Or some of us just say, I'm going to keep myself busy. I'm hurting so bad. I'm going to not let myself pause and think. I'm not going to let the wound heal. Instead, I'm going to just build a house on top of the wound in my own soul. And so we keep ourselves so busy. We keep ourselves with the TV on, with entertainment going, with other things keeping us busy. And we never actually deal with the pain, with the sorrow, with the suffering. What do you do? What do you do when you're experiencing that level of pain? I love the raw honesty of the scripture. And this is all over the Bible, but I picked one that I liked really a lot. In Psalm 10, verse 1, this is what the psalmist says to God. He says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Woo! You ever felt that way before? You ever felt that way before? Come on, we can be honest here. Have you ever felt that way before? Yes, I have too. I have too. I have in those moments. Why, God? Why is this happening? What is going on? What's the cause of suffering? One of the greatest questions in the world. Scripture gives numerous answers. Certainly a broken world full of sin is the root cause of suffering. The rebellion of mankind, the sinful decisions of humanity compounded for generations. Sinful people making sinful decisions. 
This hurts people, which causes more pain, which hurts people. But that's not it. It also gives a spiritual reason. There are dark forces. There are demons. There are beings that we don't see with our natural eyes that are, that are plotting and planning pain and suffering. So yeah, it's this broken world. It's this sin. It's this demonic reality. But there's this mystery that the Scripture consistently addresses. That a perfectly good God, check this out, a perfectly good God, though he does not author sin in your life, the scripture is really clear about that, don't blame God for your temptation or your sin, he will not tempt you in sin. But a perfectly good God who has no imperfection in his goodness, in his sovereign will, for whatever divine mysterious reason, chooses to permit suffering to move through his hand, and you experience it in a real, honest, personal way. A God who loves you, a God who cares about you, is somehow using suffering to change you for the good. Now, the scripture says that God works all things together for the good, right? But that doesn't mean that all things are good, right? It doesn't say all things are good. It says all things will work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So for the followers of Christ, you have a confidence that everything's going to work out together for good, but you also have a, su a sub-promise within that promise. All things work together for good tells me that God's going to eventually move it all to my good, and it also tells me that it ain't all good now. Right? All things work together for good, and so we see this mystery. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 45 with me. It'll be on the screen. This is an interesting promise that the Scripture gives. God speaks this through the prophet Isaiah. He says this, I will give you the treasures of darkness. Somebody say darkness. I will say, give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of the secret, in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. Treasures in darkness. Treasures in darkness? Darkness are the times of suffering, the times of pain, the times of hurt. Is it possible, let's try this idea on for a minute, that there are specific, unique things that you can learn best in the painful moment? Is it possible that God has a greater purpose even for the trial? Uh, Kay Warren, in her book called Choose Joy, said this about this particular passage. She said, I had to accept and embrace the truth that these treasures are a special category of gifts from God, hidden riches only to be found in the secret places of my deepest pain and agony. Is that possible? Maybe God's trying to get your attention in the pain so that for your good, he can turn it around. I want you to see the tension in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Look at it with me again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're being grieved by various trials. Did you notice the tension there? It says in the same passage, you're being grieved and you're rejoicing. That seems a little bit contradictory, doesn't it? How is it possible for an individual to be grieving and rejoicing at the same time? How can a person be celebrating and weeping at the same moment? How can a person be smiling and crying at the same moment? Is it possible to do these things at the same time? Well, in the natural, it's impossible, okay? No human being in their own capacity can be both sorrowful and rejoicing at the same time. And the reality is, is that the world, all of the world, all 7 billion people in the world know how to celebrate when things are good, right? It's not a testimony to anyone if I'm happy and excited when everything's wonderful, right? Some people think that that's what Christianity is. Everything's gonna be wonderful. We'll get to that in a second. And so I'm happy and excited. The reality is the world already knows how to party, right? The world, everybody in the world knows how to be positive and happy when everything's good, when I've got plenty of money, perfect health, a wonderful spouse, everything's perfect, everything's right. It's easy to celebrate. But what about the times when it's not good? 
Is it possible that the greatest testimony that the watching world can see is a people who understand something that transitions, transitions their mind from the moments when it's not good to still have a current of joy? See, the ocean, I was studying this week, the ocean uh, is driven by currents, right? We're all aware of that. The ocean is driven by currents. There's two primary forces that are pulling and dragging and drag, you know, drawing the currents of the ocean in different directions. One is the rotation of the earth, okay? So the rotation of the earth somehow makes the currents in the ocean move in particular directions. But another current uh, force that is, that is moving the currents of the earth or of the water in the ocean is the, the, uh, the relationship of that water to the sun, okay? So the sun is pulling and now the rotation of the earth is pulling. So it's possible, interestingly enough, in the ocean to have two different currents simultaneously moving in two different directions, okay? In other words, it's possible on the top of the water in the, in the shallower depths for water to be moving east according to the rotation of the earth and then at the same time in the deeper depths for water to be moving west according to its relationship with the sun. Anybody just see that? That was a mysterious analogy I just used there. What I'm saying is that it's possible in your heart as a follower of Christ on the surface to be dealing with sorrow and struggle and tribulation because of the rotation of this earth, but at the same time you have a relationship with the sun that's way deeper that enables you to experience a current actually exactly opposing the other current. Possible. It's possible. Deep down inside, it's possible to have joy and sorrow. I would even go as far as to say is that your maturity as a follower of Christ can be measured based upon how joyful you are in sorrow. The scripture says this incredible phrase describing mature Christianity. It says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, having nothing yet possessing all things. Today I want to give you three observations about greater joy. Okay, three observations about greater joy according to 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Three basic observations about greater joy. And the idea here is that in the midst of suffering, we need to develop a particular perspective, okay? A particular perspective. So the three observations I'm going to make are going to help you build a perspective of joy in the midst of suffering, all right? Very practical. You guys good with this? Okay. All right. We're all doing okay? Even in the, in the balcony up there, you guys doing good? Ooh, ooh. Okay. Number one. Number one. You can write these down if you'd like. Number one. First observation. You will have trials. You'll have trials. Go ahead. You can write that down if you want. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that why you came to church? Like you didn't know that already. You'll have trials. You will have trials, okay? It's a promise, in fact. In Scripture, in, in John chapter 16, Jesus says it really simply. says, hey, in the world, you will have trouble. It's coming. So let me just change the expectations because many people come to Christ and think, hey, if I give my life to Jesus, you're going to give me a hot wife, a ton of cash, a really nice house, a beautiful car, and a long life, Right? Wrong! Wrong! You're going to have trials. Now, God does want to bless you, and that's a reality, but you will have trials. Look at what 1 Peter 4 says. Peter says this in the same letter to his friends in the different churches. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't act like, this is weird. How is this possible? And you think, well, that's ridiculous. Why would I act like that? You do it all the time, and then you call our office. <laughs> and you say, Justin, I don't understand. Why is my marriage struggling? How could that happen? I gave 10 bucks to God this year. 
Some of us say, I don't know why it's so hard at school for me to, why am I not getting favor with everyone? Why is everything, how did she get the promotion and I didn't get, how did this happen? I thought God was for me. You will have trials. It's a part of the journey. Let me explain for you the nature of the trials because Peter encourages us as we understand the nature of the trials. If you'll notice, the first thing it says is that they're going to be for a little while. You can handle anything if your mind realizes it's not forever, okay? It's for a little while. I remember years ago, I was on a mission trip traveling all across Europe, preaching the gospel, sharing Christ, and there was a particular day where we were in France, and we had nowhere to stay, and we ended up staying in this church building sort of thing with a, with a, uh, a tile floor, and there was about 20 of us, one bathroom, no shower, and nowhere to sleep, and so we decided we were about 18, 19 days into a 22-day trip. And we decided, okay, we're going to sleep on this tile floor tonight. And so literally, I remember just taking my dirty laundry from 18 days of of dirty pants and dirty shoes and dirty socks and and laying it out and making my bed out of dirty laundry. And I just laid down on my bed. I was like, this is awful. This is just disgusting. I'm laying on dirty laundry on a dirty tile floor. I could do that for one night. And me and my friends still talk about that night. I would not be thrilled to do that for every night. I have a Tempur-Pedic mattress in Jesus' name. Right? I mean, I don't want to be sleeping on a tile floor with dirty laundry. I want to be in my Tempur-Pedic with my blonde wife. Right? That's what I want. That's what I want. But there are moments that that's not the reality, and you will have trials. And so what we have to do is realize that they're temporary. Right? They're temporary for a little while. And then it says, check this out, it says, if necessary. It says, if necessary. So, in other words, the scripture says that for a little while, if necessary, you'll have trials, right? And so this means that not all trials are necessary. You can turn to somebody near you and just tell them, not all your trials are necessary. It's true. Not all, but some of them are because of your own stupidity, but some of them, you don't have to tell your, your friend that, but some, you know it's true already, but some of them are because God has permitted them to move through his hand. Not coming from his hand, but certainly moving through his hand. Allowing these trials, these struggles, they are sometimes necessary, right? He has a plan in the midst of that trial to use it to do something good in you. This is hard for us to grasp, right? It says that you're going to be grieved. If you notice that in the passage, it says, and this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved. In other words, this is important. You're going to feel the trial, okay? Some Christians go into trials. Remember, I'm readjusting expectations right now. Some Christians go into trials thinking, it's not going to hurt because I have Jesus, right? No, it's still going to hurt. In fact, if you ever read the story of Jesus, you notice that his trials hurt. His trials hurt. He wept over Jerusalem. I think on the cross, it hurt. It hurt. In fact, they tried to give him a numbing substance and he wouldn't even take it. He said, no, no, I'm going to experience this pain. It's going to hurt. And I do embrace the reality that sometimes I'm going to be grieved. A lot of times people who are suffering say, you know, I just don't want to, I just don't want to cry. I just don't want to. Why not? You know, it's healthy to cry. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Part of your healing will come when you allow yourself to feel the pain of the reality of the situation. You're going to be grieved. Sometimes you're going to, I'm just trying to encourage you today. Just trying to encourage you. Sometimes you're going to be grieved. And then check it out. It says, grieves by how many trials? Various trials. Various trials. How many of you have a favorite color? Favorite color? Anybody have a favorite color? When you're a little kid, isn't it interesting like everybody has to have a favorite color? Like it's like you don't even get a choice. What's your favorite color? I don't know. I'm not sure. Pick one now. What's your favorite color? You know, like you have to have one. And so my son, his favorite color is blue. My, my middle son, uh, Noah, his, his favorite color is blue. But you know there's a lot of different blues in the world? 
I mean, there is, I wrote some of them down, Carolina blue, there's baby blue, cobalt blue, royal blue, Egyptian blue, powder blue, sky blue, electric blue, teal blue, turquoise blue, ultramarine blue, navy blue. There's a billion shades of blue. You know that word where it says various trials, it means the many shades of your trial, the many colors or the many different variations within a color of your trial. And what it's telling you is that you're going to have trials in various different directions throughout your life. You may have financial trials, internal trials. You may have relationship trials, health trials, persecution trials where someone's persecuting because of your faith in Christ. You might have a trial of loss. One of the most interesting trials is the trial that comes with success. That success will test your heart in unique and specific ways. All of these are trials, but they're for a purpose. Look at verse 7 with me. So that. Those are two of the most encouraging words in the entire scripture. So that. So that, in other words, God has a purpose for your various shades of trial. So that, there's a reason, there's a purpose. Look at what it says. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's pick this apart for a second. So that. He compares your faith to gold. Now, in that day, and really in our day, in many regards too, gold was the most precious substance on earth, right? Gold was the most precious substance on earth, and so people would make treasure out of gold, but most importantly, they would make currency out of gold, okay? And so, yeah, you could wear a little gold necklace or gold earrings, but the most valuable thing was the currency that you could trade for anything else. So they would make coins out of gold. In the same way, the most valuable substance in heaven is faith. He's making a comparison here, so stay with it. He's saying that your gold on the earth is the most valuable substance. Your faith in heaven is the most valuable substance. Okay, so your faith is valuable. Now, many of us know that gold doesn't come out in coin form. When they find gold, it's typically attached to other minerals, right? And so zinc and iron and silver attach itself to the gold, and what they have to do is they have to make that gold extremely hot. And they figured out if we just heat this gold up, it will become liquid and it will separate from the other substances. We can scrape those substances off and now we can take the gold, manipulate it into the form of a coin, press someone's face on that coin and use it for currency, right? That's what is able to be done with the gold. It's purified. Now, it's a common analogy in scripture. Look at it a couple other times. Job 23, stay with me today. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, that's God trying me, I shall come out as gold. I shall come out as gold. Look at Proverbs 27. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. And so what we're seeing here is that fire takes the raw materials of gold, turns it into something that can be used. Stay with that idea. The second observation I want to make today. This is huge. This is huge. Trials take the raw material of faith and turn it into currency. Don't miss this today. Trials take the raw material of faith. This is a perspective change. Remember, we're going to have a perspective change today where we say, you know what? My perspective is I'm going to have trials at times, so I can't try to live my life avoiding them, right? I'm not going to try to pursue trials by any means, but I'm not going to act like they're not going to happen. And I'm not going to be scared when they do because I realize that God will sometimes, if necessary, permit a trial, but he's doing it for a specific reason. He's taking the raw material of my faith. He's taking the raw material of my faith. It's still got things attached to it. It's not useful. A big chunk of gold attached with copper and iron can't actually be used for anything. And so he's got to heat up my faith to a point where he can make it into currency so that I can trade it for the promises that he's already given me. 
point of trial is not that you submit to it. The point of trial is that you excel over it. Okay? And so in other words, trial comes on you, and you don't say, well, I guess it's a trial, I guess it's from God, let me just bear under it and accept it and be okay with it. That's not testing your faith. Instead, trial says, you know what, there's this pain, there's this suffering, there's this injustice, there's this difficulty, but I'm going to believe his goodness anyways. I believe he's going to get me out of this. I believe he's going to heal my body. I believe he's going to restore the money that I need. I believe that he's going to be for me, even though it looks like everything's against me. I believe that even in the midst of a painful, difficult situation, and what's happening is in the midst of the squeezing and the pressure and the heat, you're Faith is becoming gold so it can be traded for the actual answer to the promise that he gave you. I was talking with somebody recently, my friend Jim. He had cancer a couple years back, and it was a terrible trial. And he went through all difficulties. His body shifted in all these different ways. He didn't know if he was going to make it. He was going through chemo. It was a very difficult trial in his life. And I just asked him this week, I said, Jim, tell me about that trial. Because at the end of the trial, what ended up happening is as he was going through chemo, he went to a church service. Somebody prayed for him, and he instantly knew after the prayer, Jim, you've been healed. He got tested a couple days later, and they found no trace of cancer. God had miraculously healed him, but it had been a year plus of him battling with this sickness, right? And so he, I talked to him. I said, Jim, tell me about the trial. What did God do in your life? But you know what he said to me? He said, Justin, I've been following Jesus for years and years and years and years. The closest I've ever felt to him in my life is when I was in that hospital getting tested. He said, God's presence, God's closeness was so amazing in those moments of difficulty. But he also said, you know, God was taking me to a new level. He said this, I, I like this. He said, I had to get beyond the question mark. He said, my faith had to get beyond the question mark. Because the question mark says, oh, I don't know, does God really love me? Oh, I don't know, will God really do the miracle? Oh, I don't know, is God really going to come through? He said, my faith had to stop guessing and questioning and had to just hold on and say, I believe you're for me, I believe you're with me, I believe you'll heal me, and I believe you will walk with me. And when my faith became solid and sure of that, it changed the way I live refining. I was talking to my wife. Some of you guys know I've shared it before. About three years ago, right before we started the church, my wife, Chrissy, went through a really difficult time of anxiety and just battling anxiety, a bunch of misdiagnosis physically and a bunch of craziness what happened in her personal life. And I was just, I was just talking with her this week and I said, babe, tell me about the process and how did God touch you or speak to you in the midst of that trial? What did God do in your life through that trial? And she said, you know, really, Justin, and this is awesome, such a theological woman. She said, you know, I really realized the atonement through this, I realized that the atonement, what Christ did on the cross, dying in my place on the cross, wasn't just so that I could be forgiven of sin, although that is the root of the reason, but it was also so that I could be delivered from anxiety and fear. It was also so that I could be healed and restored. It wasn't just for my sin, and I believed that, and my theory of faith became my experience of faith. See, God, right now in your life, is using a trial to make your faith gold. We're not done. There's something else. There's a third point today. Third point. Look at verse 7 with me one more time. Verse 7. 
It says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is what we just covered, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. But then he finishes it like this, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a little bit of a strange phrase, isn't it? As you read that, you think to yourself, well, who's he talking about there? Who are we praising and glorying? What's going on there? Let me read it in a couple of other versions. The Amplified Bible says, the proving of your faith is intended to redound or result to your praise, glory, and honor. The New Living Translation says, it will bring you much Praise. In other words, what Peter wants us to know, check this out, because this will blow your mind. What Peter wants us to know is that gold cannot come with you in the next life, but faith can. Your faith can come with you. In fact, God is going to reward you according to your response of faith in this life. Every time you believe in the midst of a trial, every time you stand firm when everything around you is falling apart, every time you don't hesitate to trust God even when everything around you thinks you shouldn't, when you do that, God remembers, God rewards you, and then he commends you in the next life. This this idea of praise, it means commending. It means he's clapping for you. He's saying way to go. He honors you, and he shares his glory with you. That's what the scripture is getting at. Every trial that comes is an opportunity. Now, to link this with last week's talk, stay with me. Every trial that comes is an opportunity to hope in God. And every time you hope in God, your faith can become solidified. And every time your faith comes solidified, you'll experience more joy. And every time you experience more joy, you'll now have more hope in the God that gave you joy. And as you experience more hope, you'll now have the capacity to access the fruit of more joy. The third point I want to make is really simple, really profound, something that changes the way we think about trials. Every trial is a doorway in to greater joy. Every trial is a doorway into greater joy. What if you and I thought this way? What if you and I thought in the the reality of our hearts and our minds to say, you know what, I believe that right now I'm going to have trials in this life. It's part of the journey. But I also believe that God's doing something. He's making my faith into something useful, something that can be used to access his promises. I believe this. And so you start to believe, you know what, God, you have a purpose in this trial. I don't know what it is. You know, the cancer that I'm fighting with or the, or the, the uh, lack of finances that I'm having right now, it's not your will that I suffer like that. That's not according to Scripture. God has good for you. He wants to bless you, but he's permitted that thing so that your faith can stand up and conquer it and overcome it. And every trial is an opportunity into greater joy. Some people would say, well, what if I don't see it? What if I don't see it happen? What if you die of that disease? What if you die without enough? But what you're doing in that moment is embracing a very foolish perspective. A perspective that looks at life like this when God looks at life like this. In other words, you're saying, I think that life is all about this moment. And God is saying, I think that life is all about eternity. And you have to dare to believe that you will see it in this life. And when you don't, that you will see it in the next one. Either way you stand, either way you believe. And you know what you'll find in the midst of that trial? Is a doorway. An invitation into greater joy. Like Jim in that hospital room, you'll experience his presence more profoundly in those moments of pain. I was reading about Pastor Saeed, who's suffering, and they locked him up in solitary confinement just a few months ago. And they said as they brought that man out of solitary confinement in a little dark hole where he can barely move by himself in an Iranian prison just because he loves Jesus, while his wife and kids cry and weep for him to come home in America, 
They said that witnesses said that as they pulled him out of that solitary confinement, he was overflowing with joy. He was happier than when they put him in. What does he have? Check this out. In James chapter 1, if you've been around church for a while, you've heard this passage. It says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How many of you heard that passage before? How many of you ever thought to yourself, that sounds ridiculous? Nobody ever goes, yes, a trial. Woo, awesome. Love it. I love trials. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. That's not what he's saying there, by the way. He's not saying get pumped about trials. He's saying that accounting is a learned skill. You have to learn to be an accountant, right? And he's saying you must learn the skill of counting trials as an opportunity for greater joy. You must learn the skill of counting trials as an opportunity for you to grow your faith muscles so that it can become strong, traded for the promises of God. It's an opportunity. And it's not the trial that gets you excited, but you learn the skill of seeing that trial as the opportunity, the doorway into maturity. And so rather than grieving, although you will grieve on the surface, deep below, there's this other current. And this other current is dictated by its relationship to the sun. And it says, you know what? This is a joy because He's making me more like him. Would you stand your feet with me this morning? Recently read a story about a guy named Lawrence Tuning. Lawrence uh, was a pastor of a church in the early 90s, and he, um, he went through what he called the year of sorrows. His, um, his wife and him lost their third baby to a miscarriage, and they held that baby in their arms after the baby had been delivered, a little boy, lifeless, and him and his wife just wept just at the same time in that year his father passed away and him and his wife were both going through some major physical issues and it felt like when it rains it pours. I don't know if you know that feeling. But Lawrence was a follower of Jesus and he got alone one night in the midst of all this pain and he wrote a song. And I wanted to read you some of the words of the song because they moved me today. And as I read these words, I'm going to be believing God that they'll become your reality right now. Some of you in the room right now, you're suffering, you're hurting, you're fighting to believe that God is for you and with you and in you because it doesn't feel like that right now. And right now, right here, Sunday morning, this moment, the Holy Spirit wants to take that fear and extinguish it in hope and faith. And he wants in your spirit to encourage you, even as you hear these words, something in you is unlocked. Listen to these words, and I want you just to grab a hold by faith. He said this, I have journeyed through the long, dark night out on the open sea by faith alone, sight unknown, yet his eyes were watching me. I've had visions. I've had dreams. I've even held them in my hand. But I never knew they would slip right through like they were only grains of sand. I've been young, and I'm older now, and there has been beauty that these eyes have seen, but it was in the night through the storms of my life that's where God proved his love to me. The anchor holds, though the ship is battered. The anchor holds, though the sails are torn. I've fallen on my knees as I face the raging seas. The anchor holds in spite of the storm. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would we rest in the truth of the gospel of your grace? Would we rest in the peace and the love of Christ right now? 
Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now to do a great work in our spirits and in our hearts this morning. We open up our hearts to you. If some of us need to weep, I pray you help us weep. If some of us need to release the pain, I pray that you help us give it to you. If some of us need to throw ourselves on you and trust you, I pray that you give us the courage to do it right now. God, for every person that's had a broken dream, a lost loved one, a failed relationship, not quite enough, and has wavered and wondered, I pray in the name of Jesus that you meet us right now and that you whisper that there's more joy, that there's greater joy. There's joy even in trial and joy even in pain because you're the God who said in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I pray that the reality of your overcoming power would be evident this morning. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.